Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Blooming podcast with your hosts, Daniela Marty and Mariah Massey. Today, we have the wonderful Beth Bowen. She is one of my past clients. I worked with her and I met her and she was so great. She is a sober coach and she runs this amazing community called Sober Stories. And we're so excited to have her today because this is us officially launching Sober Summer. <laughs> yes. I didn't oh my know God, that. I love that. That is great. Okay, yes. That'll start for me hopefully right now. <laughs> Beautiful. Now that I know about it. (laughs) Beth, I'm so excited to meet you. And this conversation is something that I've been really curious and excited to talk more about. And I think we can get more into um, our stories with alcohol. Danielle and I can share a little bit about where we've been with alcohol, where we're at now, and would love to just hear all of your insight, guidance, and tips that you can share with us and our listeners. Absolutely. Excited about that. So to kick it off, we love getting to know more about our guests and their origin story and getting to hear more about your background and how you became a sober coach, the defining moment where you decided to quit alcohol, decided to quit just any kind of substance. I would love to hear more about your journey. If you could share that with us. Absolutely. I love the storytelling part. And I also, it's funny to be on the other side of this because I ask a very similar question on my podcast and they're always like, well, where do I start? And I'm like, I don't know. Start where it feels good. Um, (laughs) So it's funny being on the other side of that. But so I guess kind of where I am now is I live outside of Austin with my family. I have two kids. My husband's a veterinarian. My background technically is in social work. So I have my master's degree in social work. I worked previously in therapy and in emergency room social work specifically. And I am now four and a half years alcohol free. And I mean, if I think about the origin story, if I think about it, where it all began, it probably goes back as far as college. I I never drank in high school. I was not, I hung out with a bunch of nerds. They were a bunch of theater kids. And we were way more concerned with like making independent films than we were um, partying. And so it wasn't until I got to college that I started drinking and partying and being around drinking culture. And it was all fairly de rigueur, like pretty typical until... I mean, not even until. It was always very typical college drinking behavior. It was always binge drinking. It was always taking shots. It was always drinking too much, getting ourselves in situations that were objectively dangerous and then, you know, laughing about it the next day. But I remember always feeling like I always got more messed up than my friends. I always blacked out more. I always, it's like once I started drinking, I was drinking to get drunk and I always wanted to continue drinking. But it was, you know, socially acceptable. It's what everybody else was doing. It didn't look harmful on the outside. I was making good grades. I was in organizations. I was doing all the things a college student does. And then I went to grad school. And the first time I remember feeling like alcohol was starting to show up in my life in a way that didn't feel super normal was, I still can remember, I was sitting and watching the 2012 presidential debate. (laughs) I was living by myself for the first time. I was 
22, living by myself for the first time. I had my apartment in the middle of Austin. It felt very sophisticated to be drinking my bottle of wine while I was watching this debate. But it was starting to get to the point where the guy at the liquor store down the road like recognized me and I was becoming a regular and I had my wine that everybody knew I drank and it was starting to become part of who I was. It was starting to become part of my personality. And it, you know, kind of continued like that for some time. My husband and I got married. I was very young when we got married, but we partied a lot. We had friends who partied and it always just felt normal. It always just felt like what everybody else was doing felt like this was cool, sophisticated. We were so grown up. And then I had my first son. So my first son, Will, is he's about to be seven years old. He was born in 2015. And after he was born, I had what was most certainly undiagnosed postpartum depression. And what followed was self-medicating with alcohol and throw in this idea of mommy wine culture and how socialized it is for women to relax at the end of the day with a bottle of wine, to celebrate finishing another day of parenting, to drink while they're doing chores. And this idea of mommy wine culture was very appealing to me. It was something that I really clung to in a time when I was very isolated and very alone. And very quickly, it went from self-medicating this to actual addiction and drinking a bottle and a half of wine every night. And most people didn't know about it. Most people had no idea on the outside. Even my partner, Hunter, didn't fully understand the scope of how much I was drinking and how much it was impacting me because I've always been good at hiding it. I've always been high achieving. I've always been, I had a master's degree. I, you know, I looked like the, the perfect mom. I had a super adorable kid. And it really, you know, Mariah, when you ask like, what was the defining moment? It was such a slow rolling train that it was just years of using a substance to cope. And then the substance was making the issue at hand worse. And I was feeling worse and it started to deteriorate my mental health. And what I was using it for was to help my mental health. And then it was making it worse. And, and I went about that for about two years. Will was two when I finally quit drinking. And the defining moment though, was I can remember in the middle of the night, it was about probably about midnight because I had gotten into this habit of staying up past Hunter, going to bed and continuing to drink on the couch and finishing whatever show I was watching. And it was midnight. I was by myself on the couch. I was probably a bottle and a half of wine in. And I looked at the clock and said to myself in my head, God, I hate you. And when we talk about in, in kind of this recovery community, you know, you hear people talk about rock bottoms and rock bottoms are typically experiences or legal consequences or events that are really consequential. They are car crashes. They are somebody leaving you. They're like all of these really horrible things. And one of the things I've really learned in this work that I do and in this community and this space that I hold is a lot of us have very subtle rock bottoms. A lot of us have moments of clarity or moments of feeling our lowest that nobody else might actually see or might be really 
inward and instead of external. And that truly was the moment that I realized I had to change something. I had to stop harming myself in the way that I was doing and, and starting to gain awareness of the fact that what I initially was using to cope, to help myself, to deal, was starting to really harm myself. I mean, it, did, it took about another eight to 12 months before I actually quit drinking from then because one of the things that we know is we have so many messages and we have so many stories about how we should be able to drink responsibly and how glamorous alcohol is and how fun it is and how it's part of every celebration. And and then on top of that, it's an addictive substance. And so it took me many months to a year to really remove it from my life in a sustainable way. But it really resulted in a lot of skill building and realizing that I wasn't coping and, and learning how to cope and talking about the, you know, kind of the overarching theme of this podcast. I was 27 and it was my Saturn return. And if we think about all of these things that come together, I mean, 27 was one of the most pivotal years of my life. And it took a lot of really hard lessons and a lot of finally figuring out who I was and actually more than figuring out, really meeting myself for the first time. And because of this, I can say that I feel very settled and confident and like I knew who I am and, and I'm open to discovering more at 30. I was about to say at 32, I'm actually 33. I just turned 33. It's hard to keep track at this point, but removing alcohol from my life was the origin story. It was the origin story, of course, for the work that I do, because I work in a very specific niche, but really to who I am today and how I show up in the world and how I interact with people and the values that I have are all from this one choice that I made in my life to remove alcohol. So I don't know. That's the that's the kind of the high notes there. I guess how did I become a sober coach? So I started sharing. I have this compulsive like need to share. I was blogging since like 2013 before it was cool and then continued after it was cool too. So I've always felt comfortable sharing myself intimately in on the internet in in public spaces and so I started sharing more about my story of getting sober and being sober and just from this storytelling standpoint and what came from that is that I got so many messages and so many text messages from women in my life who said oh my god I thought I was the only one or I'm starting to realize I don't think alcohol is actually working for me or I've been sober for a year and I haven't told anybody. And so through this kind of slow trickle of connecting with people through my own story, I started to realize more broadly that this thing that felt very singular, that felt very isolating and very personal, this experience that I went through is actually a lot more common than we realize and that people are talking about and that regular people are sharing. And with that storytelling came the community building, came the connection building, and it became a very natural progression to move into this teaching space by combining my therapy background with my lived experience. I mean, it really felt like the pieces coming together, like this this inevitable end point of 
my training and my lived experience and the community that I had started building and the stories people had started sharing with me. So I guess, you know, Danielle, you and I have talked about entrepreneur brain, but I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to do this. And I did it and it worked. And now I have been working in this space specifically with women changing their relationship with alcohol for almost two years. And it just truly feels like life purpose work. <sighs> we- oh my gosh. Just take a deep so, breath. Yeah. I'm like, one, <laughs> I, I didn't know the part of it coinciding with your Saturn return. I think that is so powerful. And as a 26-year-old, about to be 27 in the next six months, I'm like, hmm, I wonder where that, that will take me. But also, I really wanted to ask you, after you've explained, like, your origin story is is like, we could take it to so many places, but before you go into that though, I just <laughs> I just wanted to yeah. say a little something. Because when you're speaking, Beth, like first of all, I just wanna thank you for sharing that. Because when you spoke your truth, the truth that I felt, like I'm getting emotional from it. Cause I I can relate to so much, and I think so many women can, and so many people in general, right? Not just women this is a topic that is really deeply personal for a lot of people. And so I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for sharing that because everything that you said was what my soul has been like wanting me to hear. And I can't even really get into it too much right now because I feel like it's still such an emotional, tender subject. But I just wanted you to know that, yeah, like I really needed to hear that. And I know so many people are going to feel your truth and it's going to impact them. Like it just impacted me. So I'm really excited to continue learning from you. And this was the first time I'd ever heard your story. And there's so many parts that I would love to get deeper into. And I think Danielle is going to touch on one of them that is really, really important for us. And we think a lot of our listeners will relate to this aspect. So go ahead, Daniela. <laughs> yeah. So what I was going to ask before Mariah said all of the things that I was <sighs> feeling in such a nice way. Just like got me in the heart right here. <laughs> yeah. She has such a way with words. <laughs> but I really wanted to ask you, when did you start tapping into your intuition? Like when did you feel like you were starting to listen to yourself and how was that whole process? Yeah. You know, it, That's a really good question. And if I think about it, so for the first two years that I was sober, I didn't tell anybody. I kept it very close to the chest. Of course, my partner knew that I wasn't drinking. But even with him, it was one of these things where it was like, it did a sober October and then I just never stopped. Like, that's what I communicated this change in my life was versus like, I knew I was, I had, I was sober. Like I knew I had to be sober. I knew I was addicted to to alcohol and it wasn't just sober October, but it felt so tender to talk about. And it felt, I still really internalized a lot of the stigma. And so I didn't really tell anybody. I kept it really close to the chest. I would just feel really uncomfortable in social situations. I didn't share about it. I didn't talk about it 
really very few people knew that I wasn't drinking. And it always surprised people when I would see them. And it was easier because I had a, a new, a, a young child. So it was easier to like not socialize as much, to not be around people as much, but it would always take them by surprise when they would spend time with me and realize I wasn't drinking anymore. Cause I was like the wine mom. I was like, that was my identity. That was what I was known for. I shared all the memes on Facebook. <laughs> like that's who I was. So people were really surprised. And it was January of January 1st of let me do the math, maybe 2017, one of those New Year's days. And I just felt like I needed to get it out. I needed to get it out of me and externalize this experience. So I made an Instagram post and I was like, this is my like third hangover free New Year's day or something. And I shared it and I threw my phone across the room, but I was like, I have to, I have to get this outside of myself. I have to share this. And that's really when all of the pieces started falling together. That's when the community building started. That's when I started to feel more confident in my ability to be a person in the world who didn't drink or to turn down a drink or to say, no, thank you, I don't drink. And that really marked this moment from going from a place of fear and a place of isolation and really a lot of punishment of, of myself into a space of connection and feeling more confident in this choice that I had made and really realizing like, this is a really powerful thing that I've done. And that kind of hurdle that I had to jump over of quote unquote, coming out as sober really gave me the space to then start to figure out who I was. And it really wasn't until then that this felt good, that this felt fun, that this felt like something that really supported me. But when I opened up that space, that is when I was able to start to figure out who I was, <laughs> which really I had no clue. I, I had never met myself before. I had never been in a space where I could feel my full range of emotions, where I could feel my full inner desires because I had been using a substance that numbs us out for so long to disconnect from that and then moved into a space of fear and isolation and scarcity. And then finally stepped into a place of like, okay, I have a lot of opportunity here. I have a lot of space. I have a lot of I'm trying to like think of like how I conceptualize it, but it feels very like spaciousness spaciousness and openness and like receptivity of like, okay, now I have the ability to figure out who I am. And then it took a lot of therapy. <laughs> it took a lot of therapy and a lot of podcasts and a lot of books to figure it out. But I really had to remove the substance that was separating myself from myself, from my physical, emotional, and mental body. And then I had to be truly who I am. I had to be authentic. I had to let myself be seen and known and that's when I was able to figure it out. That's when I was able to open up this space to, to really feel like I could listen to those inner thoughts and listen to the inner knowing and listen to the heart tugs. And, you know, in hindsight, it was always there. They were always there. I always had the heart tugs. And we talk about intuition. And like, for me, it feels like a heart tug. It says, go this way. Don't go this way. Go this way. Tugs me this way. And they were always there. But I never had the confidence or the assuredness 
or the just like belief in myself to know that I was making the right choice. So I never had that ability to listen to them. And then for a very long time, I just, I made them go away with alcohol. It, it literally separates ourselves from our intuition and from our knowing. So I just, I just turned the volume down on them with alcohol. And so you get to this point where you're so used to ignoring those heart tugs or bypassing them or denying them or, or saying, I, I don't trust myself to know that that's real. It's just, it's a habit. You build this habit. And then when you strip away the thing that gave you the habit, then you have the opportunity to start listening to yourself. I mean, that's, that's the kicker though. You have the opportunity. You have to take it. Wow. That is so true. And it's funny how this conversation is happening after I felt a heart tug last night. I could not sleep. And I had several drinks over the weekend celebrating, right? Celebrating a birthday. And, you know, I was having a hard time sleeping last night. And it was 2 a.m. And I was like feeling the anxiety rise, which I always know like that's from drinking when I, when I don't drink and then drink on the weekend, I can, I can feel it in my body. And so what did I do? I took another substance to combat the other substance. And so I took some cannabis, which I know does not really sit well with me the next day because then I get the brain fog and then that, then I have anxiety the whole day. So yeah, just before this, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm getting on this call and I'm <laughs> having this conversation when I'm feeling this way. And when you said that heart tug, I think a lot of us can relate to having those moments where our intuition is calling us and we, we just ignore it. And then we get to the other side of it where we're hitting that bottom, the low point after that substance. And we're just like, why? And then the guilt and shame that comes over with that. And then it just keeps repeating. So yeah, I was just really having a moment there when you said that. Well, and, and I, I thank you for sharing that because it's a hard thing to talk about. And I am a huge geek for the neuroscience of it, like to know what's actually going in it on in our physical bodies and understand how alcohol impacts our brain chemistry. And one story I hear often is people saying, oh, I, I just have anxiety or, oh, sometimes my anxiety spikes on the weekend. Or they'll think of every other reason why their anxiety is worse around drinking other than the the alcohol piece, because we don't want it to be the alcohol. We don't want it to be the thing that's creating this, but we know physiologically that anxiety, this anxious anxiety feeling when you're hungover is real because it's the dopamine come down. It's your brain withdrawing from the spike of dopamine that it's had. And it's your nervous system firing because it's been suppressed. Alcohol is a nervous system depressant. So your nervous system is coming up from this dampening that it's been experiencing for however long you've been using the substance. And so we really truly do have an increase in anxiety after we use alcohol. And it's cyclical. Like you said, it's this vicious cycle. And then we use alcohol to cope with it again, or we're self-medicating alcohol in the first place. And we don't realize what it does on the back end, how it boomerangs, or we don't realize the cumulative effect of it too, because it can alter our brain chemistry, even when we're not consuming it. And so 
I find that so many people have this knowing. They know it. They, they're like, I know this, this is the thing, but I don't want it to be the thing. I don't want it to be the thing that is making me feel this way. It's making me feel worse because, Mariah, what you said about celebration, you know, weekend of celebration and how do you celebrate without alcohol? And we have a lot of stories. We have a lot of conceptions, misconceptions. We have a lot of hopes and dreams and wishes and false promises about what alcohol is versus what we actually experience in our lived experience. And the the space between knowing of like, okay, this is actually how it's showing up versus this is how I want it to show up. This is how I want it to feel. Being in that middle space is really uncomfortable and it's really frustrating and it's really isolating if you're, if you're like first having these thoughts and these feelings because it's very counterculture. It's very different than what we are told to expect from alcohol and how we are told we should be able to handle, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, handle alcohol when if we get down to like what it is at its root definition, it's a carcinogen. So that means it's known to cause at least seven different cancers. It is a nervous system depressant, which is, it means it depresses our nervous system. It's a neurotoxin, which means it's toxic to our nervous system. It's like all of these things that that's not the story we're told. We're told that it's fun, that it's glamorous, that it's celebratory, that every celebration is required to have alcohol. I remember, I mean, I would get invited to weddings when I was younger and there wouldn't be alcohol served to be a dry wedding. I'd be like, oh my God, I am not going. Why would I go to this wedding if there's no booze? But now it's like, oh my God, a wedding is like the most beautiful experience to witness to people who we love come together and devote their lives to each other. And it's like, how wild is it that we just get obliterated at these and we get pissed off if there's no alcohol? And it takes a long time to untangle those stories. That's the hard part. Right, because the idea of fun is directly related or we're told that it is to alcohol. Yeah, or to self-destruction, if you think about it. Like, why do we do this to ourselves, you know? And you don't even have to be drinking a lot. Like while Beth was talking about anxiety, I was nodding the whole time because I've never gotten like blacked out. Like I've always been like a, responsible quote drinker. Like I drink just one drink, maybe two, and then I'm done. But I become more aware of how I feel the following two, three days. Like it's crazy that I'm not hangover. Like I don't have like this massive headache or anything really. It's just this weird feeling that I'm like, one, not inspired. I'm not feeling like myself. This like sort of if I could, it's sort of like when you're wearing a shirt that's not your size, but you know, it's like uncomfortable, but you can't really like pinpoint what it is. And it's that, it's anxiety, right? And we do this to ourselves one, like again and again. And if we're like out partying, right? Like add the tiredness of not sleeping well, of staying up, of, you know, you're tired because you've been dancing, like all of the things plus the alcohol. And now it all clicked. Like I've been talking about my eye twitch for three episodes now. And and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was partying for four weekends straight. Mm. Hot girl summer. Yeah, but it was not serving me. Like my physical body was not having as much fun. So, wow, it just clicked for me. There's so much to that though, this, this idea of it not serving you. And then the disconnect is, okay, what do we do about that? 
one of the things that, you know, talking about origin story is like having removed alcohol from my life has given me the permission and also the language and the understanding of my physiology and my internal experience to then question other things. Alcohol is one of many very maladaptive coping mechanisms we can use. Alcohol is one of many different celebratory things we can do or many different experiences we can step into. And so what this has given me is the language to be able to say, okay, this didn't serve me. I wonder if this thing is serving me, or I wonder if this other thing is not working like I want it to, or is not giving me the desired effect. And if that's the case, what else do I replace it with? What do I do instead? How do I figure out what I want to feel? And and one of the things that I teach in my work with the women I work with is, all right, so tell me you've got an event coming up. I want you to tell me how you want to feel at the end of it. What is the goal of what you want to get out of this? So if they're going to a wedding and they say, I want to feel like I had like I celebrated. I want to feel like I connected. I wanted to feel, I want to feel like I'm like surrounded by love. I'm like, okay, how do we reverse engineer that? How do you actually truly get connection? How do you actually truly get a sense of celebration? Because our brain just thinks. Our brain is a really intelligent and nuanced organ, but it's also very, like it's got a one-track mind it has learned that alcohol fills all of these holes and it overlearns this. It has learned that this is useful for celebration. It's learned that this is useful for connection. It's learned that this is useful for feeling like we're having a great time. But we can tell it that like, we don't want to learn that anymore. We don't want that to be the direction it goes. We want to think about connection and we think about sitting down with a friend and like, fully being seen and having like a really intimate conversation without alcohol, without numbing ourselves out to alcohol. Like we can change this thought. So I want you to start with like how you want to feel. And I want you to go into this understanding, like alcohol is not a requirement for those things. Alcohol is not a requirement to feel connected. It's not a requirement to feel celebratory. We just have to rewire that. We have to rewire that thought. But when we think about when we put all these pieces together and then realizing like, okay, I'm realizing that there's a common denominator here. I'm realizing that there's one thing here. Then you have to figure out what to do instead. Then you have to figure out what you do with that heart tug and what you do with that intuition. Wow. Great. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Great insight. I'm just like awestruck right now. Yeah. I'm going to share just a little bit because I think Danielle and I have a little bit of a different relationship. And I think it's great that we can provide, right, both kind of perspectives you know, I grew up in a Mexican family where alcohol was like the center of our gatherings, the center of our love, how we expressed love. And, you know, I I had some traumatic moments growing up as a kid and seeing my caretakers, my loved ones get to a really scary place. And I remember how that made me feel and I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel safe in my body. I didn't feel safe with the ones that I trusted. And, um, you know, as I grew up, I I almost longed for that self-destruction or that whatever I saw growing up, even though it was traumatic, like I still longed for it. And of course, because we're taught as a culture, right, that we need it, that once we turn, well, at least here in the United States, once we turn 21, alcohol equals adulthood. It equals freedom. It equals just, 
you're a way to let loose and express yourself. And I started drinking at a really young age before 21, right? I started, I was 13 when I started drinking and it came from a place of insecurity. I was deeply wounded and deeply insecure and I did not love myself or know who I was. And the way that I could see myself, I thought was through drinking to the point of like, I felt confident or I felt like I could let loose and be in my truth almost, right? Because I think there is this truthness that comes out when you're under the influence. Like you just all of a sudden have the boldness to say what you really think and feel. And so that was liberating to me to discover that. And I wasn't a popular kid, but when I started drinking, I was popular, right? I was, I was definitely cool. I felt that way. I would hang out with people who were considered cool. And I had some horrible moments where my, my mom had to come and pick me up at 13. And yeah, it was horrible, a horrible experience for her to see me like that. And I think my relationship with it after that Once I was outed, right? Once it was like my mom knew it was something that I was doing and she obviously did not condone it. She was very, very strict with me growing up and I couldn't even date until I was in college. So she was like very concerned, but I always felt like out of spite, right? I wanted to do it because like she did it, right? And I felt like that was my way of being rebellious and like being myself was through the escapism of alcohol, it brought out this like anger in me as well, or this like almost claiming of myself. And yeah, I think up until now, you know, I've had so many terrifying experiences under the influence where I have never felt more shame, embarrassment, danger for so long. It was like, I could hear that intuition, like, this is keeping you from your truth, right? I would black out. Like I would, every time I drank, I would black out and I wouldn't remember anything. So it was like, even the truth that I was expressing when I was at that point, like it wasn't being, in, like it wasn't really being integrated fully or like processed because I couldn't remember it. And then I would hear the things that I said. And there was like more of the guilt and shame on top of it. And what's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is like, why was I blacking out? Like I could not, it was like, I would go from feeling a little bit of a buzz to just complete blacked out where I'd just wake up the next morning and be like, where am I? And none of my friends, that didn't happen to any of my friends. Like I was the only one who was getting blacked out. And so I've just been, you know, now I'm almost 30 and um, I'm ready, right? I'm ready to really start taking the action. And I've been wanting, I've been in this like sober curious world. Like I have Ruby Warrington's book right here that I read. Oh my God. We're releasing your episode on my podcast this week. (laughs) Oh my God. That's so exciting. (laughs) I can't wait to hear that one. Yeah. Synchronicities. Wow. She's, yeah, she's amazing. She definitely opened my eyes. And I think once I was reading more of her material, I felt that intuition. And that was me kind of coming into my spirituality and being like, wow, the thing that I thought alcohol brought me closer to, which was like me, 
was really like, it wasn't, it was pulling me farther away from myself. And like what I'd been seeking was my intuition and was my like spiritual practice. And once I started to find that like nirvana or like that euphoric state from my spiritual experiences or having like those moments, right. Where you're like getting high on your own supply or just feeling other ways to experience that like inner bliss. Um, it was huge for me. And I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to like start thinking about what it looks like to have a life free of alcohol. But I think the social aspect for me has been really, really hard in the the judgment that I can already kind of feel, right? Like being in certain groups and playing with times where I'm like, I'm just not going to drink this time and seeing the experience and like really like feeling into it. It's been hard to really just be like, all right, from here on out, like this is the new me. And so I think what I would love to hear more from you, Beth, is just your experience from, you shared a bit about it, but when you started showing up as this new version of you, right? This new version where you're feeling more empowered and connected to your truth and what it was like and how it impacted your relationships. Mm, That's a good question. First though, I'm going to ask you to listen to the synchronicities of the timing of this recording and the fact that Ruby Warrington is going to be on my podcast and that you have her book right there on the table and these heart tags, because when we talk about spirituality and we talk about intuition, I, I mean, we could this whole, I'm going to go down a whole different direction real quick, but I did not consider myself a religious person or a spiritual person at all. I was a self-described atheist. And now I would much more say I'm an agnostic slash witch, (laughs) if you want to like be totally frank, (laughs) but I really discovered a lot about what I believe our world in our universe, in our, what serendipity really is and all of these things. And and that was something I discovered by no longer numbing myself out, by no longer being complacent in sitting on my couch and drinking a bottle of wine every night and watching TV. It gave me all this space to start exploring, okay, what do I actually believe? What do we, what do I feel? And starting to notice those synchronicities and starting to notice those just messages and signs and like guidance from who knows what and realizing like, okay, this is all working for me. And there's a reason that all of these experiences or all these signs are happening at the same time. So I invite you to listen to that. And it's hard to listen to that, but people will tell me all the time. They'll be like, I had this, this sign and this sign and this sign and this sign. And I'm like, are you going to listen to that? Are you going to pay attention to the fact that those are all falling into your lap right now because it's it's not nothing. And I thank you for that story. And I think the whole other thing I do is, is sober stories. It's a whole podcast just about stories because one of the things that I hear in that is that you read that book and it opened a door that you didn't know was there otherwise. And that is a really important piece of all of this because one of the things I'm not answering your question at all. I'm going to go down my own road. One of the things (laughs) that is in the quote unquote recovery world is that there has always been only one way to do this. There's been the 12 steps. 
you are an alcoholic, you are an addict, you have a disease. It's called the disease model of addiction. So it it literally says that you have a disease. You will always have this disease. You will always be at risk of falling back into this disease. And when the disease model came about and when AA was built, it was really wonderful for all of the people it helped. Because before that, we just considered addiction to be a moral failing. You were just a weak person. You were a degenerate. You were lost in society. This is like about the 1950s. The 1950s came the disease model and AA really started picking up. And so we created a new door for people to step into where it was considered a medical problem. There was a solution to it. There was support for it. There was a better understanding of it. But that was our only other model for 60, 70 years. And I got sober in 2017. And Ruby's book, Sober Curious, came out in 2018. We didn't have this language for what this is. When I quit drinking, nobody was talking about this on the internet. The only person who was talking about it is Holly Whitaker. She is the author of Quit Like a Woman, which is a fantastic book. Highly recommend it to anybody who is sober curious or thinking about this. But she was the only person, her and her and Laura McCowan was another one. There weren't a lot of people who were talking about removing alcohol from your life, but not being an addict, but not being an alcoholic. And, and I don't consider myself an alcoholic. My verbiage of choice is sober or alcohol-free, even though I absolutely 100,000% was experiencing alcohol use disorder when I was drinking a bottle and a half of wine every night. I was physically, emotionally, mentally dependent on alcohol. But what happens when we start to open up these other spaces and we start to use words like sober curious, when Ruby Warrington coined this word, it didn't exist before that book. Like Nobody was using that phrase. Nobody was talking about being sober outside the 12 steps until Holly did. And what we find when we start to conceptualize these things in different ways is that we are opening more doors for people. We are opening more doors for people to see themselves in and to be able to organize their lived experience and say, oh, that makes sense to me. This didn't make sense to me before. I never felt like I was an alcoholic. I never felt like I was one drink away from ruining my life. Like this idea of stigma doesn't work for me, whatever it is. Or even for me, I have I have people who are like, I don't know if I can be sober forever. That doesn't work for me. I'm like, you don't need to, you don't need to go through my door. But when we have books like Sober Curious or we have people talking about this or on my podcast, we share the wide, like the whole gamut of people who are sober or Cali sober or sober curious, or just like all of these different doors that we can open for people. What that does is give them permission to step through a door that they didn't know was available to them before and ultimately find a version of this life that is more aligned, that is more well, that is more connected, that is more fulfilling and spiritual and all of these things that we are all seeking. And when we have somebody who shares something in a way that resonates with us, that gives us permission. So Mariah, when you hold that book, that's a door. Somebody opened a door for you to organize this in a way that makes sense to your brain and a way that you can see yourself maybe doing and making it make sense in a way that it didn't before. Because being an alcoholic doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work for a lot of people. And most of the people I work with, it doesn't work for them. It doesn't have to be the only way to be a person who doesn't consume this addictive substance. So to answer your question, (laughs) to go back to your question. (laughs) (laughs) 
That was all great. (laughs) Fundamentally, I believe that becoming a person who doesn't drink alcohol sustainably requires practice and skill building. So when we think about this idea of being sober or sober curious or alcohol free or whatever you want to call it, we have still a lot of that idea of this is just willpower. This is just like, I should figure this out as soon as I understand it. I know this is bad for me. I know it's not working for me. So if only I was a little bit stronger, I could go to that social event and not drink. But what it really is, and this is really rooted in my therapy background in what I know about the way our brains work, it's it, it's a skill that we build. So when we think about stepping into social situations, we're never going to get it right the first time. We're never going to be able to automatically decide that we're going to be sober forever and then just nail it 100% of the time. It takes practice and it takes one experience after another in building this resilience and building this confidence. And I mean, there are a ton of like logistical, like how do we do this on a like a tactical logistical way? But my broader answer to this is that it takes time and it takes patience with yourself to know that you are learning a new skill and you are relearning an entire way of building that is counterculture, that is outside of what everyone else is doing. It's outside of how we are socialized to show up in the world. And so it's, you're like going to screw it up. You're going to like fumble over your words. You're going to drink when you didn't want to. You're going to like feel uncomfortable and eventually over time, you're going to get to a place where it it feels good. And one of the tenets, one of the concepts that I teach is a skill called distress tolerance. So distress tolerance is a really core concept for all of this, for all of it. What distress tolerance tells us is that when we sit with distress, when we sit with something that feels uncomfortable, when we sit in a feeling that doesn't feel normal or good or like homeostasis, when we sit in that moment without escaping from it, We are building tolerance for the next time. So when we are socializing and we are feeling that discomfort and we are feeling uncomfortable in that situation, we are experiencing distress. If we can sit with it for like a hot minute, if we can sit with it for like five minutes, it's going to be easier the next time because we are building that tolerance to that distress. And really, this is a core tenet of not drinking in general, because we use alcohol to escape. We use alcohol as a way to get out of discomfort. And so when we are feeling uncomfortable, when we are feeling in distress, we are feeling awkward, nervous, anxious, whatever it is, and we use alcohol to get outside of that, we are reducing our tolerance to it. We are making ourselves less tolerant to that feeling, meaning we're going to be more anxious next time. We're going to be more prone to using something to get outside of ourselves. So when I teach this concept, what I want people to know is like, it's not going to feel good right away. It's it's just not. It's not going to feel natural and it's not going to feel easy. And it's going to require practice of this discomfort and practice with being in a situation that you're not going to immediately run from. You're not going to use something to get outside of yourself. And over time, it becomes more natural. So on a tangible level, I mean, if I think about this when I first quit drinking, the first two years, I told you, I, I just like didn't tell anybody for the first two years, Every single social interaction I went to, I was so uncomfortable. And I said, uh, no, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm not drinking today. 
And like, that's, that's just how I lived through it. And sometimes there would be a friend who I could say like, yeah, I actually am not drinking anymore because it was uh, trashing my mental health and could like tell a little bit of the story too. And then sometimes there's, there's this piece of just being like, this is me. This is, this is who I am now. And this is how I'm showing up. And most people will be with you. One of the things about removing alcohol from your life is you really get clear on who is for you and who isn't and who is there to have a good time versus who is there to know you. And I don't sugarcoat that part. That part can be really painful because sometimes you will realize that a friendship is solely rooted in alcohol and there's no substance to it on the other side of it. And you will find the people who are there for you no matter what and don't need you to be fun, flirty party girl to be somebody that they care about and want to be with. So it's a balancing act, I think is my answer. It takes a lot of practice and it's one of the hardest parts about removing alcohol from your life. Wow. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) Take a collective breath. (laughs) Yeah, let's just like process that for a second. I mean, honestly... I love how all of this can be applied to any compulsive behavior in general. Because sometimes it's not alcohol. Sometimes it's caffeine. Sometimes it's overworking yourself. (laughs) Not talking about me. Uh uh Um, I twitch. Yeah, I twitch. Yeah. Other times it's attention. Like I think that there's so much that we do out of compulsion in that piece of of becoming comfortable or at least, you know, tolerating distress is so important because we were taught from, I mean, if you think about when we were growing up, right? Pacifiers, the concept of a pacifier, right? Oh, the baby's crying. Let's give him a pacifier. We grow up and our pacifier can look a lot like alcohol. It can look a lot like let's work 12 hours. It can also look like eating like a crazy person, right? So it's like, I just think that there's so much to learn out of this podcast because there's just so many things that we do to destroy ourselves a little bit. And without, you know, being like, oh, I drove under the influence or I almost had, um, oh my God, what's that called? Um, I'm like, see, this is how vanilla I am that I cannot remember. Um, how people call, oh, I overdosed, right? Like, no, like you don't have to overdose. I mean, you can just get an eye I had an alcohol overdose. (laughs) (laughs) You're so cute, Daniela. (laughs) But still, it's like, I just think that there's so much that we do to not be ourselves. And it's Mm -hmm. like, and I think that the key question here is, one, what are you trying to prove? Like, Mm -hmm. or what are you trying to escape? Because there's there's escapism in all of these mm-hmm. things that I just mentioned, mm-hmm. and they don't kill you in a day or right. two, right? Right. It's it's Death a by slow a thousand burn. Cuts. Yeah. Death exactly. By a thousand cuts. Yeah. Well, and it's it's really interesting because I have two kids now, so I, I had Max, my younger son, while I was sober. So I was I, it was very interesting going through one pregnancy and early motherhood, deep in alcohol addiction, and then another pregnancy and motherhood fully sober, but it very much informs how I parent because I sure wish I had been taught how to regulate my nervous system and how to 
listen and manage my emotions instead of like trigonometry in high school. I don't ever use trigonometry anymore, but I, I, I use nervous system regulation every single day. And so I think you're exactly right. We aren't taught how not to escape. And it isn't just alcohol. One of the things that's the most common when people remove alcohol from their life is they develop a hard sugar addiction, like hard. And it Every single time I see it over and over and over again, they're like, I never liked sugar and now I can't stop eating candy. And it's, it's brain chemistry and it's distress tolerance and it's learning how to actually be in your body without running from the way you physically feel. And it's letting your, like, there's so many parts in the brain. I'm, I'm a huge brain geek, but like letting your prefrontal cortex heal because alcohol damages your prefrontal cortex. And it's so many pieces that go into it. And all of these things, it's not just alcohol, it's everything. And for me, we don't know on a scientific level, like why some people are more prone to a behavior like this, where a compulsive behavior of like drinking, doing drugs, sugar, whatever. But I know I sure have it. I know I'm that person. I am really prone to wanting to escape from myself. And so for me now, four and a half years alcohol-free, I'm, I, alcohol has no appeal for me. I know too much about it. I have heard too many stories from people whose lives it's ruined. Like there's no appeal to alcohol, but I'm real susceptible to using food or like <laughs> numbing out with Tetris on my phone, like just playing like mindless games forever or spending five hours on TikTok, like there are still other behaviors that we can do that are being used to escape from ourselves, that are being used to get outside of the way we feel in all of them. They may not work physiologically the same way alcohol does to truly separate us from that intuition, but all of them are with the cognitive or not otherwise intent to separate ourselves from that inner knowing, from that heart tug. And they're really effective at it. It takes, it really makes it easy to not know yourself when you can just go scroll TikTok for five hours. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you like break the pattern? Like when you find yourself scrolling through TikTok for five hours, like what's your best advice to like, <laughs> wait a second, what's going on? All right, Miss Daniela Marty with the eye twitch. <laughs> I believe that just as much of this is stuff that we do in reaction to finding ourselves at a place of burnout as it is preventative. And once somebody is out of crisis, I'm like, okay, I want you to tell me about your laundry habits. I want to tell me about, I want you to tell me about how many hours a week you're working. I want you to tell me about how your mental health is feeling because all of these things are eventually going to get you to a place where you have to numb out. You have to separate yourself from your physical body because it is just too intolerable. So in crisis, I tell people to go sleep, like sleep. I want you to rest. I want you to heal. I want you to say no. I want you to clear your calendar. I want you to outsource everything. And Laura McCowan is a leader in our space and she uses the phrase extreme mothering. And I love this concept. It's this idea of how would we treat somebody that we are a caretaker to? How would we heal that person? And and it's, I think Mariah, I've heard you talk about in this podcast too, like reparenting. It's very much a reparenting thing. This idea of like, how do we care for ourselves in crisis and 
be in this space of extreme mothering and know that that's what it's going to take to get out of the crisis. And then on the other side of it, I want to know how do we prevent the crisis from from happening in the first place. So one of the concepts I teach in my work is a concept I call the body battery. So with the body battery, I conceptualize this as the physical, the mental, and the emotional energies. That's our body. We have these three different types of energies that we have in our body, and all of these levels are at play. And when we are really drained, our body battery is really drained, either our physical, mental, or emotional, or all three is really drained. What this does in our brain We have two different parts of the brain that I want you to think about. I want you to think about the prefrontal cortex, which is where our impulse control lives, our values, our decision-making, our planning, our working memory, which is our attention span. And then we have the limbic system, which is back here towards the backside of our brain. That's like our brainstem. That's our hippocampus. That's our amygdala. These are the parts of the brain that want immediate gratification. They're very animalistic parts of our brain. They are seeking dopamine, like really hardcore. They want to feel good and they want to feel good right now. So we have these two parts of our brain that are always kind of at odds and they're always, there's this tug of war between the two. But when we are well, when our body battery is charged and high, we are living and operating from our prefrontal cortex, which is our higher thinking. That's the part that makes us, that's the part that differentiates us from the animal kingdom. We are able to live from our values. We are able to make decisions that we want to. We are able to monitor our impulses and know what is actually good for us. But when our body battery starts to get really drained, we move back here and we are run by this part of our brain that wants immediate gratification, wants to feel good right now. And that's when we start scrolling TikTok. That's when we reach for a drink. That's when we start to numb out to Tetris or food or whatever it is. So when we think about, to answer your question succinctly, how do we, what do we do when we start to notice ourselves doing that? That's telling me your body battery is too low. That's telling me that your body battery needs to be recharged because you are at risk of being in a place where you literally cannot even make the decision to do the parts that your higher brain wants to do. Cause this part's not running the bus. Your prefrontal cortex is no longer in control. So when we think about willpower too, this is really important to understand when we think about willpower, because willpower says, we'll just don't scroll TikTok. But brain chemistry tells us we do not have the capacity. We are not operating from the part of our brain that even allows us to do that, to live how we desire to live, to not drink, to not scroll TikTok. So what we need to do is to build that capacity back up. We need to rest. We need to reduce our stress load. We need to outsource. So when I'm, again, back to this extreme mothering, this crisis phase, we need to make it to where our body battery can stay juiced up enough throughout the day that we are not so shot. We have to move into that part of our brain. So it's going to be cliche though, because my answer is rest. I want you to rest. But it's so true. And it's, and it's not, I think that rest and also the things like that we're eating, how, how we're showing up, the amount of hours that we're working, like there's so much there. I don't know if like listeners are having this moment as well, but I was just like listening to you, Beth. And I was just like nodding and like having like little like moments of realization of like, oh my God, I was dying for attention because I was hungry. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. We have an acronym in the recovery world. It's called HALT. It stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. If you are having a craving for alcohol or a craving to get outside yourself, I want you to check in. I want you to HALT. Say, am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Or am I tired? Bored is also another one. But those physical states are really, really common ones for us to want to get outside of ourselves. But really, our body's just asking for attention. Our body's asking for us to do something, to fill it with good f- food, to move it in a joyful way, to like 
connect with another person. We get oxytocin, which is the the connection chemical when we truly connect with somebody else. So when we're in this feeling of, I got to get outside myself with something, our body really just wants something else. Alcohol is a great band-aid, but there are so many other things that we can do to satisfy this alarm bell that is going off in our bodies. I'm just reevaluating my whole life right now. (laughs) (laughs) That there's so much depth to this. And part of me is like, wow, alcohol, for me at least, has been at the root of so many other things that I've been struggling with with my mental health as far as like not feeling capable, confident, in control. Those are like my three C's right now that I can go back to and have used. I see that I've used alcohol to help with those as a quick fix, but then it only made all of those problems more magnified afterwards. And so hearing Danielle, it was such a great question or your point about it's not just alcohol, right? It's so many other things in our routine and our day-to-day that we go to so desperately for a moment of like escape, for a moment to just feel like a break, right? And I think with so much happening in the world that is like out of our control and just seems so heavy and hard, and scary and confusing that we're clinging to these things in desperation, right? To just have a moment to not be here now. And what I'm finding is that's one of my favorite phrases, be here now, right? Is even when it's hard, be in that moment. And Beth, you were talking about you have to sit in that uncomfort, right? And it continues right? To get easier and easier, or you're more comfortable in that uncomfort. I love that. And that's something that I'm going to definitely practice and look to when I'm like needing that moment of escape. Like what can I give myself that is something that's a more healthy, sustainable practice. And, um, I'm just now like really taking all the things that I've learned from like I would say 2017 until now, where I discovered this like world of spirituality, sober curious, right? Ruby Warrington's book, all the books that I've just digested over time. I feel like it's taken almost five years for them to really settle in and now start embodying it and now starting to see like, wow, okay, my breath work practice is maybe what I should have grabbed last night versus the quick fix of that edible. And this morning, right, I did that breathwork practice and the brain fog lifted. And I was like, wow, like you can literally get high on your own supply. And it's just being able to find those things that work for all of us to grab to or to grab a hold of instead of that, that just unhealthy habit. Right. Well, and I, I, want to touch on what you said about the state of the world. And one of the things I believe very, and if people follow me on Instagram, like my politics are out in the open, I can't not talk about it. It's very deeply personal to me. And one of the things that I believe is that I am reclaiming my power 
by no longer numbing out to the world with a substance and that it is a counterculture active resistance to be a person who doesn't consume this substance everyone says that we should. And when the world feels so heavy and the world feels so hard and people are going through such immense heartbreak and I'm like, I have, I've been crying every day this week. So like, I probably won't get through this without crying, but I beg people not to numb out to it. I beg them to sit with it and to be mad and to be sad and to, to not give the powers that be their power, to not forfeit their power by numbing out, by being complacent, by making it go away, because it's really powerful. And I could have a whole different podcast episode about my belief of the powers that be and how alcohol and big alcohol is intertwined with that. But I think that there's a lot of power in saying this feels really sad and really heavy and really uncomfortable. And I'm choosing not to numb it out. I'm choosing to sit with this in this discomfort. And I'm going to take the like power and the energy that that creates. And I'm going to go do something with it. I'm going to use this power. I'm going to reclaim this power first. And I'm not going to give away my power anymore. I'm going to sit with this intuition. I'm going to sit with this inner knowing. And I believe very very deeply that women specifically are incredibly powerful and that we have, we are being actively suppressed by the use of alcohol. It's been marketing, marketed at us. I could go, I won't go down that tangent, but it's really powerful to, to sit in this heaviness and to sit in the heartbreak and the fury and all of the feelings, or just even the worry. I mean, I understand how heavy it is, but there's a lot of like, I just like picture it as like electricity in that. And I'm not turning off the electricity. I'm sitting with it and I'm going to go use it to do something good in the world. Yes. I'm claiming that full body, just like my heart was racing because I felt that truth. And the best thing that we can do to change what's happening that we're not happy about is take control and sovereignty over our bodies in the ways that we can. And that starts with, right, just getting to be in your body and be comfortable in your body as it is, right, without the substance. It's yeah. so powerful. And letting yourself feel the feelings. Like, I, I think it's it's such a nice, well, I don't think anything is a coincidence, but the episode that's coming out this week, I mean, this week, like, in two days, we're recording this June 27th, so whatever. We talk with Dr. Renee, she's a homeopathic doctor and she like the whole episode is about feel like that most of our physical ailments have a deep-seated root of not feeling the feeling in the moment. And it's so interesting how we develop these compulsive behaviors in alcohol and all the things and especially with how the world is right now and and how it's been the past 2-3 years. Like I always think back to how 2 years ago We were like indoors perpetually and we've somehow forgotten, right? Like I haven't forgotten, but like most of like you go outside and it's almost as if it never happened. Like all of those people didn't die, you know? And we collectively have gone through so much trauma that it's like, yeah, as I say, except for the the internal trauma that all of us are are literally holding on to right now. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's crazy. 
And I mean, I'm not here. I'm never going to justify people turning to things that destroy them. But at the same time, it's like, it's been crazy. It's been crazy. And it's, and it's fine. And if you've been doing things that are not good for you so far, this could be your sign. This could be your sign to stop to like take back your yourself, learn more about yourself and start making better choices for yourself. But it's totally understandable if you haven't so far. Like honestly, it's been it's been chaotic and the energy's been all over the place and I'm so glad you mentioned that though because Mariah, when you were telling your story earlier about the shame a lot of my work is actually rooted in shame. And we have a lot of data that shows us that substance use, specifically substance use disorder and high markers of shame proneness are interlinked. It's kind of a chicken or the egg. We don't know if people who are more shame prone are more likely to develop challenges with substances or if it's the substance that creates the shame or both. I I think the answer is probably both. But a lot of my work is rooted in Dr. Brene Brown's shame resilience theory. And what we know about shame is that shame doesn't teach us anything. It's not beneficial. All shame does is perpetuate the behavior that it created in the first place. So when people start using these maladaptive coping mechanisms or when they are just trying to survive in 2020 beyond, and they start using these things and then they start feeling really bad about themselves for using that thing. And then they're like, I should be doing this or blah, blah, blah. All that's doing, that shame that you're internalizing is going to make it worse. And so when people, and especially this is being recorded June 27th, June 24th was a couple days ago. And when people come to me and say, I drank because Ro got it returned and I'm so heartbroken and I'm so sad. I'm like, you're okay. You're okay. Get back up and try again. There's no shame. You didn't screw anything up. Nothing is broken. It's okay. Try again. And really going into it with this idea of it's all data. It's all trial and error. We are gathering information with every chance. We are learning what works for us and what doesn't work for us. So when you've been using something to cope and when you've been using something to deal, it's okay. It served its purpose for you when it was in the moment. And people ask me, they'll be like, do you hate alcohol? And I'm like, well, I know a lot about alcohol, so I'm not a big fan of alcohol, but I can't truly hate it because it served the purpose that I needed it to serve when I first started using it heavily, which was to get me out of the depths of postpartum depression. It served a purpose then. So I can't hate it because if I hate it, then that gives past me, 27-year-old me, too much shame that lumps too much shame on me and that hurts too much. And that like hurts like my, not my inner child, my like mid twenties child that hurts my, my mid twenties child. So I can't hate it. So I want people to know if you're using something that is getting you through something, getting you through a really hard time. When we live in a world, Danielle's in Spain, so she has her own special world, but we live in the United States where (laughs) mental health care is really hard to access. It's a lot easier to get a bottle of wine than it is to get a Lexapro subscription prescription. It makes a lot of sense that we use these maladaptive coping mechanisms and there's no shame in that and it's okay. And you can choose to use something else now. Mm. Yeah. And it's all a part of our story, right? It's like everything that we've chosen, right? And everything we've experienced is all part of who we are now. And there's so much power in sharing those stories and freeing ourselves from shame. Mm. Yes, ma'am. And we've got to love our past self. 
even if we wouldn't do the same things, right? We didn't know better. So just got to have yeah. lots of self-love. I will never regret having alcohol use disorder because it opened so many doors for me now. I wouldn't be who I am today if it weren't for struggling with addiction when I was a new mom. I More. love this. We're I'm so like grateful for yeah. you, Beth, yeah, to have you here and for you to be doing the work that you're doing. It's so needed and it's so important. And I feel changed mm. truly after this conversation. And it was exactly what I had been needing to hear. Mm. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for your story. No, thank you. And where can we find you? Because mm. I think this is a great place to close and invite people. <laughs> I know to I can talk to, to you all about this forever. That's why I was like so excited. I was like, Daniela, you're gonna like this one. This is gonna be a good conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. So I do group and individual coaching for sober curious and alcohol free women on my personal page. So my personal Instagram is at Beth Bowen underscore. The person who has at Beth Bowen won't give it to me. I've asked her. <laughs> she won't give it to me. It's like a private account with like 20 followers. Oh no. But I coach there and we have a program called the Booze Breakup, which is a program for people who are wanting to change their relationship with alcohol, even if they don't quite know what that means in the long run. It's really like the foundations of the neuroscience and rewriting our stories and understanding how this is so intertwined in our lives. And with that comes my private community, because I believe very fully that this isn't just the knowledge. We have to also do this among other people who understand it. So that is my coaching offering. I like coaching because if I did therapy, I could only work with people in Texas. But I also have Sober Stories, which is my podcast and YouTube and blog. It's my multi- multimedia platform where we, it's, it's my, my larger team, we share stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with the intent of opening doors, like we we talked about Mariah, with the intent of sharing different ways people are doing this, different life experiences, different language, different ways of, of being a person who is reconsidering this one substance with just the hope that somebody hears a story that they resonate with and a door is opened for them. So we are, um, our Instagram handle is at we are sober stories for that we can be found at sober stories at wherever you get your podcast for that as well. Wow, I'm so excited! Thank you, thank you so much. And to close the episode, we hope that this whole conversation was as inspiring as it was to us. I am about to empty out all of the bottles in my house, even if they're <laughs> water bottles. And yeah, so. We hope that you enjoyed it and see you in the next one. Thank y'all for having me. Bye. Bye.